0: Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full-screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to
1: develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee.
0: For the past three decades, Sylvia Weiner has spent winters in a very tidy Miami apartment. Here in this apartment, her impressive running career is on full display. Okay, where do I start? I don't know. Her race medals, and these are just the ones from around Florida. They hang on an accordion-style hat rack, and I asked her to tell me what races they're from.
1: This New World, yeah. Okay. I came first of my age. This is a half or a whole? This is a half. This is a... That one's a shell. There are so many of them. Mostly it's first place.
0: Sylvia is a dedicated runner. She's 85 now. And she's run almost every day since she was in her 30s.
1: You don't need all of them. Do you?
0: I mean, these are kind of ballooning out from the wall. Like, there are so many on there. It must come, like, what... Eight inches from the wall.
1: I don't know. Probably never measure.
0: How many medals do you think are up here?
1: I don't know. Never counted. I have. I says if I would say close to two thousand races, short races. I will not exaggerate. Two thousand races sounds like
0: a lot for a mere mortal. That's fifty races a year for forty years. But we are not just talking about anyone. When you look around Sylvia's apartment, you do not get the sense that she's bending the truth at all. Her apartment is a spotless shrine to the miles she's put in. There are first, second, and third place plaques that run across every wall. And this is not a single file procession of accolades. The plaques are stacked four or five tall throughout the room. Metro-Dade Marathon, five kilometer road race, female masters, third place, April 16th,
1: 1989. probably the worst one that's the third place. (laughs)
0: It's the third place. Sorry to read that one. Well,
1: that's 40 and over, you know, and I must have been already 65 or 70. Who knows? She's got two
0: massive bookshelves, neatly packed with every color of trophy. On the doorknob of her front door hangs this little fabric leprechaun holding a clover, and the words printed on the clover, winner age group. I'm Rachel Swaby, and this is Human Race. Each week, we tell a story about runners and the world of running. This week, the story of the amazing Sylvia Weiner. Sylvia's name is etched into marathon history, but her story, both her personal history and her impact on the running world, it's so much greater than can be summarized on a commemorative plaque or medal. Sylvia's from Poland, but her permanent home is in Montreal. And I visited her in Miami, where she spends the winter. Now, Sylvia wasn't always a runner. Her childhood was traumatic, but we'll get to that later. As a kid, she only ran out of necessity. When she was 16, she immigrated from Poland to Canada, and she married not too long after. She and her husband had three children, two sons and a daughter. In her 30s, Sylvia wanted to enroll her kids at the YMYWHA in Montreal. That's the Jewish YMCA. But to do it, she had to join, too.
1: A Swedish man came to be uh, an instructor, and he was the manager of the athletics. And he said, in Sweden, people run. So, he said, would you want to try? Her first outing was with a group. They ran around a small park. It wasn't even a quarter of a mile. So everybody came back to the inside, and they said, oh, I don't like it. And I also didn't like it but I, because my heart was beating very fast. And I said to him, well... Her running instructor. How comes my, my heart beats so fast? He says, how would you know you have a heart if it wasn't beating? Yeah.
0: I love that. How would you know you have a heart if it wasn't beating? She decides to give it another try.
1: Two days after, it took us out again. When she
0: gets back to the Y, her face is flushed and her cheeks are rosy. I looked in the
1: mirror and I felt, oh my gosh, I look good. This was the 1960s.
0: At the time, it was not a normal sight to see a woman running.
1: It wasn't becoming a woman running. But I didn't give up. Attitudes about women runners were
0: beginning to change, but very slowly. The Boston Marathon opened up to women in 1972, but there were just a handful that ran. But for Sylvia, that quarter-mile jog quickly turned into a half-mile, turned into two miles, turned into five. A few months after Sylvia started running, she joined a small running group. The group was five men, and Sylvia.
1: And the men looked at me, what does she want here, you know? So I wanted to be nice, and I said, how are they going to accept me? Sylvia made a crest for the group, a symbol of her willingness to be a part of the team. He made shirts. And uh, people started to find out about it. So they came to join. And then it became a big peck, and people came from out of town.
0: When the club grew, the women ran on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. The men ran on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. Sylvia ignored the convention and just showed up to run every day. But back in the early days of the group, The mileage climbed and Sylvia began to get stronger. Some members of the group, Sylvia included, decide they'd like to give the Boston Marathon a try.
1: I find out what to do, and they said, you have to do every Sunday a 20-miler in order to be able to endure the marathon. So I did. I followed a few men that did it every Sunday at 20 miles.
0: How how many twenty miler's did you do before the Boston Marathon?
1: Uh, once a week, about two months.
0: Twenty miles every Sunday for two months leading up to the marathon. Compared to today's standards of training, that is intense.
1: I says I only want to do one marathon.
0: Sylvia ran her first marathon, the Boston Marathon, in three hours and forty seven minutes. She was one of only nineteen women who finished. And so it began. From One marathon became 75. Seven Bostons. The next year, at 44 years old, Sylvia finishes her second Boston marathon with a time of three hours, 21 minutes, and 38 seconds. She has plenty to celebrate. First, she was one of only 28 women who finished. She lopped off 26 minutes from her previous year's time. Third, she'd beaten a few of her teammates. And finally, this is the biggie. In 1975, the Boston Marathon, for the first time ever, added a master's division category for women. That meant women over 40 could compete in their own category. At age 44, Sylvia becomes the first woman ever to win the Boston Marathon master's division. Her record is written in Boston Marathon history. And from there, Sylvia just keeps accelerating. She becomes a regular on the race circuit in the Northeast. Sylvia gets all the expected benefits from running. She gets stronger, she joins a community, she feels the sense of accomplishment, as she should, but she also realizes that the sport has other more profoundly life-changing effects. Sylvia sticks to running for dear life. When she's at races, Sylvia stands out. Maybe it's because she's a bit older, but she also makes herself known.
1: Because I'm short, I always put myself in, in the front. But there are some runners who are fast and, you know, but I figured I don't want to be squeezed. So I go in the front.
0: Sylvia is not even five feet tall, and she's right around 100 pounds at this point. Sylvia's towing the line with some marathon legends.
1: I remember I standing near Bill Rogers, and I put my hand on him, you know, in the, in the starting line. I said, maybe your, your strength will rub off on me. And he laughed.
0: Yes, that Bill Rogers, the one who won four Boston marathons and four New York City marathons. Maybe his strength would rub off on her. This is just the way with Sylvia. Her presence is really disarming. Not too long ago, Sylvia entered the Fairfax Egg Run in Vermont. Again, Sylvia is in her 80s and even smaller now. With old age, she's shrunk a couple of inches. So she's at this race wearing shorts and what almost looks like a one-piece swimsuit top It has this pink and blue triangle pattern straight out of the 80s. And I wanna be clear here, this is not a dig. She wears it very well. And she walks up to this guy she doesn't know. Her head is the same height as their race number, which is pinned at his abdomen. So yeah, he's tall. She knocks on his arm and says, hey, who's taller, me or you? He looks down, laughs. She asked to take a picture with him, and he agrees. By the way, you can find this amazing picture in our show notes this week. Sylvia has an endless number of these kind of stories, where her ability to talk and her charm endear people to her. She once gave Jock Simple a piece of her mind. Now, Jock is the Boston Marathon race official famous for trying to rip off Catherine Switzer's number during the 1967 event. And Sylvia met him later in Montreal. And she gave him an earful about trying to yank Catherine out. In the end, Sylvia and Jock become friends.
1: Sylvia's a celebrity. That, I mean, no matter where we go, whether it's in the park or to a race, everybody gravitates towards Sylvia because she's been doing it so long. And she's been uh, such an inspiration to so many people.
0: That's Paul, one of Sylvia's longtime running buddies. I went to breakfast with Sylvia and some of Sylvia's other running friends while I visited her in Miami. They've been running together for decades. A 7 a.m. run followed by breakfast at Moe's Bagels, the restaurant that Paul owns. And this is their long-standing Thursday ritual.
1: We've been running with her for many, many years.
0: This is her friend Joe.
1: We trained for the marathons together, and uh, she's, as Paul said, she is an inspiration to all of us. She's sort of blossomed in the running community.
0: After breakfast, we went back to Sylvia's apartment. And when I visited, she had a book titled The Boston Marathon, one that was published in the 1970s, and a whole bunch of other magazines and newspapers set out on the table to show me. So in this book, The Boston Marathon, she flips to a passage where her name appears. And I read the paragraph. It says, out in the hallway, a small woman stands by herself. Sylvia Weiner is barely 100 pounds, just under five feet. She's 44 years old. She has sad black eyes and dark curly hair.
1: Yeah, sad eyes, yeah.
0: The book goes on to talk about her success at the second Boston Marathon, but it has a mistake in it. It has her time wrong. The author mixed up her 1974 result with her faster 1975 result. But it did get one thing right. Those sad eyes. Why those sad eyes? The story of Sylvia's early life after the break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. As an adult, Sylvia became an extraordinary runner. She was the first woman to win the Boston Marathon Masters Division in 1975. She picked up running late in life, but once she started, she was prolific. She came in first in her age group all over the Northeast. Sylvia ran because it made her feel good or to put it another way, running saved her from feeling bad. It gave her a way to cope with her traumatic past. Sylvia was born to a Jewish family in a small town in Poland in 1931.
1: My father was a watchmaker and a jewelry maker by hand. And uh, he uh, couldn't make a living in our small town in Poland. So he was working in Warsaw.
0: Sylvia went to visit her father in Warsaw in the fall of 1939. It was bad timing. When she was there, more than a million Germans invaded Poland and bombed Warsaw. Sylvia was eight.
1: And I was still in school, you know, a child.
0: Buildings were falling all over Warsaw, and everybody panicked. When the bombs hit, Sylvia ducked into a building, and when
1: people started to run, she ran with them. Sylvia and her father... We just lost each other. He thought, you know, there were so many bombs. So he thought maybe I was killed, you know. Sylvia's father ran into someone from their small
0: town, someone with transportation, and the man, he told Sylvia's father that he better take the ride home while there still was one. So her father makes it home, but he feels deeply guilty about losing Sylvia. In the meantime, is stuck by herself in Warsaw. She and a bunch of other people hide in the cellar. And then a family she meets takes her in. She was just a kid, relying on other people for food. Outside, there were more bombs and fires throughout the city. After so much time,
1: Sylvia's family thought she must have died. But I was still alive, you know. They didn't know there was no mail. And uh, then one day I showed up.
0: When the trains finally resumed service... Sylvia makes it back to her
1: hometown. My father, my father fainted. He fell on the floor. It was a terrible scene, you know. And he was still a young man.
0: In war-torn Poland, Sylvia and her mother and father, older siblings and two younger sisters, they did what they could to get by.
1: I, my father started to repair watches in my town. You know, he didn't go back to wars on them, So... He knew a farmer that he repaired his lot, and we heard that they taking children and they killed them.
0: They being the Nazis. So her father went to the farmer who
1: wasn't Jewish. Maybe you want my daughter to come, and do something. Yeah, he said I have a few cows. She can look after the cows, take them to the pasture, and that's how I survived because when they came to the Nazis uh, to the town and took everything away. Uh, I was at a pasture.
0: When news hit the farm, the farmer told her she had to leave, and quickly. He gave her a chain with a little Virgin Mary on it, and he told her to run. There was a lot of confusion. Someone told her perhaps she should run back to town, where all the rest of the townspeople were instead of away from it. But like she would later in life, Sylvia followed her instincts.
1: I didn't listen. I just kept running. I run through a river. I didn't even know if it was deep or not. I just run. And uh, the action stopped. I'm getting a little tired.
0: This, I'm getting a little tired. It's not the continuation of the story. But at the time, I didn't get it. When I listened to the tape later, I realized that Sylvia was telling me she's starting to have a hard time talking to me about what happened to her and her family. To me, in that moment, these events seemed so far away. Sylvia gives speeches on her history and the Holocaust at schools, and she's talked to reporters about it. She talked to me about it, too, earlier that morning during a walk in a nearby park. I just assumed that, sure, it would be hard to talk about, but that the distance had made talking about it possible. So we continued.
1: And I just kept running.
0: Sylvia said she ran and ran. She hid in nearby villages and cornfields. She never saw her family again. Eventually, Sylvia came back to her village. When she arrived, she remembers blood all over the streets. Sylvia and the last of the Jews in her village were rounded up into a ghetto, a place set up by the Nazis to segregate Jews. Typically, when the Nazis had rounded up enough people...
1: They send them to a place called Treblinka. there were gas and burn.
0: So you, you were separate from your family? I have to stop. Oh, so. yeah, no worries. You're sort what's of hurting? No, I just feel a little. Yeah, yeah,
1: no problem. No you problem. You feel like that too? No,
0: nope, you, you take your time. Do you want to take a nap? Do you want what, to, what, what would you like to do now?
1: No, I'm
0: just resting. Okay. Here it is again. This time, Sylvia says it more directly. I think I have to stop. I'm asking her to relive the separation from her family, how long she was in Warsaw, and then in the ghetto, and I'm asking her to pull up details about the last time she knew her family was alive. Sylvia does talk about her history, but I get the feeling that by asking for dates and details, I'm knocking her off her script, which is destabilizing. When she stops, Sylvia changes the subject. She mentions that she'd like to get her nails done later that afternoon. If her prolific running career is any indication, Sylvia is not the kind of person who quits when things get hard. So just 15 seconds after she asked to take a break, she dives right back in.
1: And I don't stop her. And then I went to this ghetto. It was a big ghetto. They assembled all the leftover Jews. And then they pushed them in a train. And... Uh, There was already people burned and gassed. In just two months of
0: 1942, 265,000 Jews are taken from ghettos in Warsaw to Treblinka. People poured in from other areas, too. Treblinka's primary function was a killing camp. But for Sylvia, something happened on the way
1: to Treblinka. And some people knew where we were going. So they seen the train turn around. They said, no, we're going to Majdanek not to Treblinka.
0: Majdanek is a concentration camp southeast of Warsaw. At this point, she'd long been separated from her family. When she gets to Majdanek...
1: Then they picked out people to take a a shower. And next door was the crematorium, the gas chamber.
0: Sylvia was picked to take a shower. Sylvia's naked. All the women in the showers are naked. Nazi soldiers forced them all to take off their clothes. In the showers somebody comes up to her.
1: And she says to me, Oh, Sylvia, she says, I'm your mother's best friend. I said, Yeah, she was. And she was happy to be taken with the living. And she was she wasn't an old woman, in her thirties. That time thirty was already to me old. Remember, Sylvia was just a kid. And she's talking to me, our nurse woman comes in, she grabs her by the shoulder and pulls her out. And next door was the gas chamber. And she knew because there was a Red Cross. She wasn't a stupid woman. She, she understood it wasn't right. Because here everybody takes a shower and they pull her. She pulled her out. and never seen her again.
0: So you have one moment of like someone you knew from your past.
1: Oh, yeah. I knew some at the, at the selections. I knew a lot of them.
0: And the horrors just continue on and on. More people that she recognizes are killed. Others die. Women and children around her are freezing. At one point, Sylvia sneaks into a barrack, risks her life to steal a blanket for someone in need. A truly heroic act.
1: But it didn't help. A couple of days after, they took all those women with all those children to be gassed and burned.
0: Sylvia lived. After Majdanek, she was taken to two other concentration camps, Auschwitz and then Bergen-Belsen. She may have escaped death, but her day-to-day existence was so bleak. People were murdered all around her. She was forced into some truly gruesome tasks, including pulling clothing from piles of dead bodies. At Bergen-Belsen, her third camp, she made a friend named Anna. Sylvia and Anna were sick at the same time, Sylvia remembers when Anna was taken by the illness. Many, many years later, when the famous diary came out, Sylvia realized that her friend
1: Anna was Anne Frank.
0: How long were you at each camp?
1: Oh, in Maidan, just a few months, then Auschwitz. Auschwitz was two years. And then Bergen-Belsen, a few months. That's where I met Frank. Oh, I'm getting tired.
0: Yeah. You I don't want,
1: want to talk anymore. OK, no problem. Do you, wanna, do you want some water or something? Yeah, I'm going to take some water. I didn't realize that I can talk. I'm so tough it. But I, I feel kind of not, you know, not so good.
0: She says she's not feeling good. So I turn off my recorder. She has some water. I eat a bagel that I hadn't had a chance to finish earlier. And then I ask her if I could turn my recorder back on. And she says she doesn't want to record anymore. She tells me that she started to feel like she was going to throw up. We decide to get some fresh air. I leave my recorder behind. Sylvia shows me the pool that's part of her apartment complex. It was windy and neither of us was dressed properly, so she suggests we warm up in the complex's sauna for a few minutes. When we're in there, it feels like she just snuck us into some secret warm room that's available just to her. She shows me where she takes walks around the water behind her apartment. There's a rumor that there used to be manatees there. Sylvia is a chatty and friendly tour guide. She tells me which door to the mailboxes is too heavy to open. She tells me how her neighbors offered to lend her a walker when she fell and broke her kneecap last fall. She thanked them, but had no intention of turning into the kind of old person who used a walker. As she zips around the complex, her energy is infectious. I'm torn in two directions. I feel guilty for pushing Sylvia too far. But I also fear that I've just blown the opportunity to share this amazing woman's story. So there's a TJ Maxx across the street from her apartment, but a big, busy intersection separates her apartment from the parking lot. Sylvia doesn't drive anymore, and the big crosswalks are kind of frightening. She wants some new running pants, so I offer to drive her across the street. She's still wearing her running clothes from the morning. Bright blue pixelated running tights, fluorescent yellow shoes, and a black stretchy cap with green, orange, pink, and blue polka dots. As we browse through the sale racks and the athletic wear, two things are immediately apparent. The clothes? They are not colorful enough for Sylvia. She's at home in bright colors and flashy fabrics. TJ Maxx suddenly seems like a sea of black. And then the sizes. Every pair she holds up look like they were made for a giant, even size zero. Too long. Sylvia settles on a black pair of pants that may or may not fit, but they have an unbeatable price. We go to lunch at McDonald's, her suggestion. Even there, people know Sylvia. A woman is excited to see her and asks how she's been doing and about her health. Sylvia mentioned earlier that she wanted to get her nails done, so I offered to drive her to the nail salon too. It's a strip mall place with an overwhelming smell of chemicals. Sylvia opts for iridescent pink. This day, it has gotten off track. How to get back on track? Sylvia explains how she does it, right after the break. Sylvia spent several years in concentration camps. When the war finally ended, she was liberated from Bergen-Belsen. But she had no immediate family left, no place to go. She had an uncle who lived in Montreal, so when she was old enough, at 16 years old, she crossed the Atlantic and arrived in Canada as a refugee. Even in Canada, she felt like an outsider. She had this number on her arm, 48,911, and it made her different from the other girls her age. Shortly after she arrived, she met an older man, got married. Sylvia had three children, and she worked to rebuild a family after losing her own. And then one day, after all of this...
1: I was walking on the street, and I thought, I'm going to faint. And uh, my heart was beating fast. And so the, the doctor, I went to the psychiatrist, and he, because the physical doctor told me that he doesn't see anything wrong. I should It's my nerves. The psychiatrist, he says... He says, now that you have a normal life, uh, it's like a boil, it opened up.
0: For a while, she tamped down her past. But all of a sudden, it appeared again. The images and the memories of that time suddenly reappeared and would not leave her alone. She's having nightmares, she's depressed, the psychiatrist prescribes tranquilizers and sleeping pills. But then, the why? The exercise class, a dedicated training group, Sylvia begins to run. So when did you realize that you were good at running? Was there a moment that you had that you were just like, oh, this is something that, I, that I'm good at and that I want to do? So
1: when I got rid of the sleeping pills and the tranquilizers. I have a, li- a love for it. And then with all my dreams and nightmares, I, you know, I didn't dwell on it, I eased up. And this was the biggest uh, victory for me, you know, to ease up. And then I thought, for dear life, I'm going to stick to running.
0: Was it a conscious thing, like you ran, you ran it out and then you just didn't think about it anymore, or...?
1: Uh, during the run, I uh, meditate, you know. And I only think how to be healthy, how to do good, and don't, don't think about it. I try to eliminate it from my thoughts. But when I sleep, it comes comes back.
0: And it's no wonder. Sylvia went through and still lives with the memories of the ultimate horror. What Sylvia learned is that running allows her to cope with these memories. It gives her control. The memories are still painful, but no longer debilitating. As it turns out, When Sylvia started running in the 1960s, she landed upon a powerful solution to ease the psychological effects the Holocaust had on her. And this is years before researchers begin seriously studying running's effect on trauma survivors. There's a research group at the University of Regina in Saskatchewan, Canada. This research group has been studying how running affects people with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. They're also looking into other anxiety disorders. To be clear here, Sylvia has not been diagnosed with PTSD, but by looking at PTSD patients, we start to see what it is about running that helps Sylvia cope with her past, and what it is about running that has the power to help so many others. The researchers say that almost immediately upon beginning an exercise regimen, runners start to feel an increase in positive feelings and a decrease in negative ones. And these feelings seem to last even after the exercise is over. Furthermore, people with depression and anxiety tend to avoid social interactions. They skip a hangout with friends or a gathering at work. Running brings them closer to other people, either through participation in a running group or just in the proximity to other people out on the trail. Social withdrawal drops as fitness improves. And, importantly, the choice to run instills a sense of control, when people with anxiety and depression often feel like they're losing control. But perhaps what's most astonishing is what running does to the brain. Over time, running can reduce fear when there's been a trauma or outright extinguish it. One way that researchers think this happens is through the increased volume of brain-derived neurotropic factor, That's a protein that seems to help eliminate well-established fears. People with, say, PTSD or anxiety disorders have less of that protein than someone without those conditions. And running increases the amount of the protein. Lastly, there's what people feel on the run. When we start running, our heart rate rises, we're short of breath, and we get sweaty. For people with PTSD, Just thinking back to some traumatic moment can activate fight-or-flight response. So, they get shortness of breath, rapid heart rate, and you break into a sweat. When you're sitting on the couch, that feels terrible. You feel out of control and in a panic that there's no imminent threat, but you feel like there is one. Running teaches people with PTSD that in elevated heart rate, shortness of breath, and sweat, there are no need to panic. When you're on the run, those feelings are exactly what you should be feeling. Over time, runners can start to recognize that those feelings are something that they can manage. If they regularly hit the road, they can start to see their negative feelings ease, just as Sylvia did. The social benefits of running are true for Sylvia
1: even today. Come on, introduce you to the guy? There's Joe. Hello. Hello, hello. Sylvia, she's our hero. Our hero. This
0: is Paul again, a fellow runner and a friend of Sylvia's. He's one of the guys that she runs with and has breakfast with every Thursday.
1: That's unexpected, I know, you know. The day
0: I spent with Sylvia, it started at 6.45 a.m. I picked her up at her apartment, and by 7, we were at Reynolds Park in Miami
1: and then arrive where the opening is.
0: Sylvia meets up with some running friends. They're the group that she's been meeting on Thursday mornings to run together for decades. They're mostly younger men. Sylvia made it clear that she likes running with younger men. She told me, old men complain too much. One of these younger running buddies, he's 79.
1: I want you to know Joe is a champion runner.
0: Sylvia's broken kneecap from last fall has slowed her down a bit. She's had to stop running for a few months. So as her other three friends set off, Sylvia and I take a brisk walk. We walk through big mossy trees and we turn onto an elevated path through a once alligator infested lake. This is Florida after all.
1: How are you there? I'm fine, thank you. You've been good. You look good.
0: We're walking fast, talking about
1: her history. I felt a little out of, of place because I was called a refugee. Sylvia went to a tattoo parlor to get her number removed. And I had a number here. So I said, I want to I get rid of it. I end up with an infection. Almost lost my arm.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. I, I wanted to be like like all the young girls here, you know? She still has the scar. You could see. This was the number.
0: Yeah, it's a little blue, and there's a scar yeah. there. She tells me her husband passed away 16 years ago. She talks about some of her most memorable races. She talks about the Holocaust on the walk, too. In fact, Sylvia naturally flips back and forth between talking about winning a race and the horrors of her history. When she's moving, just as the research suggests, talking about the Holocaust, it comes a little easier. Here's an example. We're walking fast, talking about how she's run 75 marathons.
1: That's when I used to train. I used to do American in my training time, and I used to be very strong. And I survived. You can imagine. I was two years in Auschwitz, which it was the biggest, the biggest camp of killing with the gas chambers.
0: Or this, she tells a story about going back to Poland as an adult. Naturally, when she visits, she runs. Two young men on the street watch her pass by. And she's approaching a hill. And they must have thought, this little old lady. So they tell Sylvia that they could absolutely beat her up that hill. She agrees to the challenge. And Sylvia, of course, leaves them in the dust. As she tells this story, she's clearly amused with the outcome.
1: And they were probably drinking because I I smelled alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) I had, I had a ball, but it was a very sad, uh, you know, a sad time for me. A very sad time because it's not far from my town and a lot of people perished there.
0: So Worldwide, there are approximately 480,000 Jewish Holocaust survivors. There are an estimated 12,700 still living in Canada. The latest numbers are from 2014, so now, two years later, there are certainly fewer. Sylvia tells me she thinks perhaps one reason God has kept her around so long is to help the people she meets remember what happened to her, to her family, and so many other people. So she's continued to share her story. And this ability to share her story and run as well and for as long as she has it makes
1: Sylvia a powerful motivator. I says, look at me, I can do it, you can do it. And there's a lot of them that admit that I made runners out of them.
0: They saw you running and they thought...
1: Yeah, if, and they knew my history to some point because during the run, I used to talk about it, you know. I always say, uh, I'm not gonna talk about the concentration camps during the run but i always end up finishing about it this is something that you don't never get over
0: and so people hear your hardships and think like yeah. well if she went through all of that stuff i yeah. can be a runner too
1: i've encouraged them a lot it, it it doesn't it makes them really feel better and try harder because when they hear my story
0: I was inspired by Sylvia, too. Just recently, I traveled to Boston. In Boston, there's a monument in Copley Square that honors all the winners. It was placed there for the Boston Marathon's 100th anniversary in 1996. I wanted to see it, and to see Sylvia's accomplishment set in stone. As I arrived, there was a tour group walking over the circle on the ground. The middle of the circle shows the Boston Marathon route, from Hopkinton to Ashland to Framingham and so on. And around the circle there are Boston Marathon winners. And I'm going to try to find Sylvia. 1975. Bill Rogers, 209.55. Masters Robert Franklin 230. There we go. Sylvia Wiener of Canada. 321.38. I would have expected something like first woman to win masters, but it doesn't say that. Something I was thinking about yesterday was, you know, she had this number tattooed on her arm, and she took it off because she didn't... made her feel like an other, like a refugee and not like somebody normal. And here, it's just so extraordinary. It's not, um... She stands out, but in a really positive, incredible way. The Sylvia Wiener effect is real. Being around her makes you feel good, like you want to work harder, like your goals are attainable. When Sylvia reached over and touched Bill Rogers' arm, hoping that his strength would rub off on her, it's more like he'd be lucky to have some Sylvia rub off on him. So would we all back in Sylvia's apartment in Miami, before I left to catch my flight home. I asked Sylvia for something selfish. Do you have any advice for me?
1: Advice? Oh, yeah. Not to listen to people what they tell you. If you're tired, if you're really tired, okay, you're allowed to take a rest. But if uh, you feel that you're strong enough And you can overcome, you can shorten the run, but don't stop. If you'll have it in your mind, you won't stop.
0: Sylvia doesn't know why she survived the Holocaust and why her family members didn't. It was luck, mostly. That no one found out that she stole a blanket, that she didn't die of typhoid fever, that she wasn't picked for the gas chamber. She thanks God for her survival. But the battle for her sustained survival, that came later, when she was an adult. The trauma of the Holocaust threatened to take over her life. But this time, it was the opposite of luck that got her off the sleeping pills and the tranquilizers. Sylvia's decision to run and to keep running, not to stop, even when it was hard. This is the way she survived the rest
1: of her life. I always wanted to live. I never believed i was going to survive but i did
0: human race is produced by me rachel swaby with audrey quinn and christine Fennessy, with editing help from brian dalek special thanks to gordon asmundson from the university of regina for sharing his research and thanks to debbie wiener for her help with the story our theme music is by danny cock david willey is the editor-in-chief of runner's world and the editor-in-chief of this podcast. We'll see you next week.